Welcome back to the Bet on Yourself podcast. This podcast is for ambitious people just like you who want to create a life and career that is full of adventure, learning, and fulfillment. In this podcast, I am translating the best practices of seemingly superstars into actionable advice for us quote-unquote normal people to meet our goals and get extraordinary results. My first guest of the season, Dex Hunter-Tariq, has had a very rich career. He is currently the head of communications for Oversight Board, the independent body that makes binding decisions for Facebook's most challenging content issues. Earlier in his career, Dex has worked with leaders across the tech industry and politics, including as head of communications for SpaceX with Elon Musk, head of executive communications for Facebook, including four years as the speechwriter for Mark Zuckerberg, and as Google's very first executive speechwriter, where he supported CEO Eric Schmidt, and that's how we first met. Before that, he was a speechwriter for the office of the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. But, you know, I was certainly the youngest person in the department. And, uh, you know, often, you know, I got pulled into things because they thought, ah, we need a, a young person's perspective, or we need somebody who's a bit more tech savvy and under, understands, you know, what are the, the trends and the tools that people are using today. You know, I remember one of the most excruciating meetings of my life in 2009, when I had to go and brief a bunch of UN uh, officials on what is Facebook. Dex is also a New York Times best-selling ghostwriter and frequent public speaker on technology issues. In fact, I highly recommend you watch his recent TEDx talk called How to Change the World, A Practical Guide. Our conversation here was fascinating. We start off our chat talking about how Dex had a career plan, which he thought would be linear and in the public sector. Then he realized that he could have just as big of an impact, if not more, in the private sector. This was a realization I too had in my career bridging the gap between academia and technology. So Dex shifted from government into tech, starting off at Google where everything was very fast paced. And he and I exchanged some stories about how in those early years of the company, everything you volunteered to help with, you ended up owning by the end of the day. And you know, at Google, if you had an idea, uh, you know, the odds were, you know, by the time you suggested that idea to somebody, uh, they'd be saying, why aren't you doing it right now? Uh, you know, if you volunteered for something, you were probably going to be in charge of it by the end of the day. Our conversation then goes into the key differences between business and tech in the U.S. and Europe, and how the generational divide, geographical and linguistic boundaries affect our work. I then asked him to talk about what it's like to write for some of the most quoted executives in the world. And he said, you're not trying to invent a voice, you're trying to unearth it and figuring out what they really believe in. This part of the conversation was very profound for me. And I couldn't resist the temptation to ask him about all the speeches he'd written that have never been used. You're definitely going to want to stay tuned until the very end of our chat when we dive into his current role as head of communications for the Oversight Board Administration, why this organization exists, and the foundational issues it's trying to address. There are no easy answers, and that made this part of our chat particularly fascinating. You're not going to want to miss a minute of this, I promise you. Let's dive in. Dex, welcome to the Bet on Yourself podcast. Good to see you again, Anne. Good to see you. We've just been reminiscing about how long it's been since we were in the same place. With this global lockdown, we've been on other sides of the planet. Now we're both in Europe, and it's really nice to be reconnected to you, even if it's on Zoom. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we can meet again in person soon. I hope so. I'm, I'm dying for that. Some like face-to-face -face connections with old friends again. 
well, as you know, the Bet on Yourself podcast is all about career empowerment and really aligning our work with our personal vision, mission, and values. And you are the ultimate example of that and somebody that I really enjoyed working with personally and think your whole career journey is such a great example of that. So before we get into the um, headline parts of, of your career, I wonder if you can take us back to the beginning. Maybe you can tell us what a young Dex thought he would be when he grew up and then what you ended up studying in school. Oh man, uh, young, young Dex did not have a very good plan. Um, you know, interestingly, I never thought I'd ever work in the private sector. Um, you know, I was one of those, you know, insufferable, very idealistic, you know, students who thought public service only comes through the public sector. And I had this very clear vision that I was going to be a diplomat and, you know, I wanted to work for the government and I wanted to work for a country or an international organization. And that would be the career path. You know, once I started that, it was a pretty linear you know, path from A to B and I'd spend my whole life doing that. And, uh, you know, I finished my, my master's, um, you know, I was at Oxford and three days after that, I flew from Oxford to New York and uh, I started an internship at the UN. And... Uh, I ended up working at the UN for uh, two and a half years before I was plucked out of there by, by Eric. Um, but, you know, during that first two and a half years, I, I really actually got to glimpse how does the UN work and how does diplomacy work and what does that career path that I'd originally conceived look like? And it, it showed me that there's a lot of other probably more enjoyable and potentially more productive ways to, to do good for the world than just working for, uh, you know, diplomacy or for governments. It's incredible. It still resonates with my journey as well. My plan A was to be an academic. I spent three years at Amazon, but in my interview with Jeff Bezos, he asked me what my five-year plan was. And I was like, well, I'm going to go do my PhD. I got into my PhD after three years at Amazon and had the same realization of like, oh, actually, I think I can <laughs> be more influential in global economies through working in tech than, uh, than here as an academic. So it's interesting. Yeah. You got your doctorate at the School of Amazon. <laughs> Yeah. It's funny how careers kind of teach us new things and we kind of express some of our talents and interests in unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. So you started the UN, if I remember right, you started working for Ban Ki-moon. Is that right? Right. So I was a very uh, lowly uh, communications person uh, in one part of the uh, Secretary General's office. And, uh, you know, I, I dealt with media, you know, I dealt with communication strategy. And, uh, you know, it was it was actually fantastic, um, you know, in terms of the level of access, because the UN uh, is quite an old school organization. You know, I think, you know, they had not fully embraced, you know, uh, diversity, uh, which is interesting for an organization like the UN. But, you know, I was certainly the youngest person in the department. And, uh, you know, often, you know, I got pulled into things because they thought ah, we need a, a young person's perspective or we need somebody who's a bit more tech savvy and under, understands, you know, what are the, the trends and the tools that people are using today. You know, I remember one of the most excruciating meetings of my life in 2009 when I had to go and brief a bunch of UN uh, officials on what is Facebook. Uh, you know, this was 2009, so it had been around for a few years already. And they were just starting to decide, you know, did the UN need a Facebook strategy? And it was like, how can this be possibly down to, uh, you know, be, be up to me, you know, somebody, you know, who's just, you know, in their early 20s, you know, and I just happen to be very passionate about this, like, surely you have a whole army of people who should be, you know, pushing you into the future. But it turned out the UN mostly wasn't living in the future, it was mostly living in the past. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's an organization I have a huge amount of respect for, and I think it's incredibly important, the work they do, but it's, it's often, you know, hamstrung 
by just how old fashioned it is. And that was the other thing really, you know, when, when I got called by Google, it was like, these are the guys from Star Trek. This is literally Starfleet they're building out in San Francisco. And it was a chance to go and work for an organization which in my mind had a common thread with, with the UN, which is doing important global things for a global community, but in a very, very different way with a different level of resources and probably with much more advanced methods of working. And that really attracted me. How did that conversation come to be? How did Google start headhunting you? Um, I got called one day by a, by a Google recruiter. Yeah, it was like completely out of the blue. And I think they just see my LinkedIn. And uh, I know Eric was looking for, for somebody to come and help him, um, you know, uh, with, you know, external speaking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was too intriguing and often not to, to call back immediately. I remember it very well because I was having one of those days at the UN where it was, a, it was a terrible day. It was like a Friday. I'd had a whole bunch of like awful meetings with like very snooty diplomats. And uh, I got back to my, uh, my desk and I, I had this email uh, from someone and I said, you know what, I'm going to call them back right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's very similar to my recruiting experience, actually. I was, um, while in my PhD program, I was working at A9, Amazon search company that's based in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting at my desk. I worked there um, every Friday doing special projects for the president of A9. And my desk phone rang and it was a Google recruiter. I didn't even have that phone number. I have no idea how they got that phone <laughs> It's a mystery to me even today, but same, I was so intrigued. I just had to call back, even though right. I was very happy doing what I was doing. So what was that transition like um, into tech? As you described, it's a completely different pace, environment, expectations, and what were your thoughts when, this is where you and my um, career paths merged, because I was- yes working for Eric Schmidt at the time. I think I was chief of staff or maybe that was before my chief of staff days. Um, but that's where we first met each other. So what was that initial transition like for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll use the geekiest analogy I can find. Um, you know, I, I was a bit of a gamer in my youth. Uh, the way I always thought about it is the UN was almost like turn-based strategy. You know, you take a turn and then the next player takes a turn. You know, it's like a game of chess. And Google, it was real-time strategy. Everyone was moving all the pieces at the same time. You know, if it was chess at all, it would be like playing four games at the same time. You know, when you see those people in the park, you know, who are geniuses. And yes, it was the pace. Everything was moving much faster. It was also the scale. You know, you go to a Google, you know, project meeting or a product meeting and people would say, oh, yeah, I can roll this out. And, you know, maybe there'll be five million users. And if it's five, like that's small potatoes. Like people will say, mm, do you want to add a zero to that? Then it's probably worth doing. Um, so that was interesting. The other thing was just how much more creative it was. And I think that came with having the kinds of resources where you could actually go and execute on that creativity. I don't think people at the UN are less creative. I just think, um, you know, as an organization, it's strapped for resources. It doesn't have the means to go and do these things. So people tend to adjust their expectations and they start, you know, not saying the things they truly believe in or want to do. And, you know, at Google, if you had an idea, uh, you know, the odds were, you know, by the time you suggested that idea to somebody, uh, they'd be saying, why aren't you doing it right now? Uh, you know, if you volunteered for something, you were probably going to be in charge of it by the end of the day. And, uh, you know, that was a, a fantastic and, of course, very challenging thing to do because you also end up with that whole system of, you know, managed chaos. And that's, you know, where, where you came in and to help manage the chaos. And, I mean, I think you had an infinitely harder job. I just wrote about the chaos and tried to make it a little less chaotic. <laughs> Right. So, Dex, I want to pick up on something that you just um, shared that I think is really unique to those early Google years, where you shared your feeling of you volunteer for something and suddenly you own it. <laughs> I think that was particularly 
thrilling and terrifying about those early years at Google and some of my very favorite memories. But I'm curious also, so you had this major shift from government into tech mm -hmm. where everything is 10x, where it is anywhere else. Um, but I also wonder, what's, what was it like for you as a European coming into the States and um, the difference between way business is done there? Because me now, having transplanted myself from the States back to Europe again, it has been really obvious to me that there's some differences in how things get done, even within tech here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think, um, you know, there's many, many fantastic European businesses, incredibly innovative. They're thinking about the future. They're working in the future. You do get a lot of organizations, and I think this is true everywhere, including the States, which haven't fully embraced, uh, you know, the transformation of the work environment. They're still operating in ways using cultural norms that existed, you know, decades ago. And, you know, I was definitely struck by that when I uh, returned to the UK in 2018. You know, I spent my entire career in the States. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, my almost my entire adult, you know, life in the States. And I came back to the UK, uh, back to London, my hometown. And, you know, I found that, you know, for example, when you have meetings, it's very hierarchical. You know, there's, there's an expectation that the most senior people, uh, you know, get listened to the most. And if you're a junior, you're almost expected to sort of, you know, fade into the background. You know, I went to like dinners where, you know, uh, you know, senior people, you know, would, you know, lean over to me and whisper, who are all these people? They all seem like nobodies. And I think, what? Like, are you joking? Like, every single one of these people is like a player. You just don't know any of them. Like, that's a completely different thing. And, you know, because I think in Europe, you know, there tend to be smaller communities, you know, centered, um, you know, around much smaller networks of elites. I think people often assume that they know everybody who's valuable to them immediately. And the United States is a massive environment, um, you know, and the networks, you know, are really, really, you know, spread out. And there's many cities which have, you know, world-class, you know, uh, you know, networks and communities. And I think everybody recognizes that you can't possibly know everybody who matters. You can only know a fraction of them. And um, because of that, I think people are more open to sharing, you know, ideas and exchanging, you know, connections across those. Uh, those lines, you know, geography isn't your, uh, you know, master. Whereas Europe, I think it very much still, you know, it often does reflect, you know, linguistic or national borders. Um, I do think as well, you know, really, it's it's the generational divide. There, there is an expectation that to be good at something, you've got to be seasoned, and seasoned means you're just older, and that's not a good approach at all, you know. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of companies are struggling now with how do they actually, you know, really. Uh, realize the full potential of all of their workers, you know, in every age bracket, um, and not just, you know, assume if you've been here for 10 years, now is when we start actually listening to you. I was really related to that. I think you brought out some really important points about the generational differences, about expectations of, of expanding networks. Something that was so striking to me about Silicon Valley is the newest voice in the room was all often the one you tapped into first because they're coming with a fresh perspective and not encumbered with the way that things have always been done. I was just on a, a talk um, for a conference based in Copenhagen a week ago, and I was talking about the hippo effect and they were like, the what? And it's just what you described, where the hippo effect is when the highest individually paid person's opinion has been expressed, then innovation right. tends to stop. And I just think that's such a great summary concept that I love start. I'm happy that I've started to see it here in Europe more than I used to, is uh, we're now inviting more diverse voices into the conversation, different levels of expertise, and acknowledging that there's some real advantages to that novice factor as well. So that, that's been striking to me too. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the diversity factor, I think, is really important. Like, um, you know, some of these debates, you know, seem further behind in Europe than in the United States. And, um, you know, I know, you know, things like the Me Too, uh, you know, movement, you know, conversations about Me Too, you know, really have lagged, you know, particularly at the elite level. Um, you know, I think a lot of people didn't fully take it seriously. Um, you know, similarly to, you know, the kinds of uh, discrimination against, you know, Asian Americans, you know, huge, you know, political moment, you know, in the United States, you know, bipartisan. And, you know, in Europe, you know, uh, Asian communities have faced all sorts of pressures, and there's been much less, you know, political reaction to that. You know, partly it's because, you know, some, you know, countries in Europe, you know, much more, you know, ethnically homogenous, and they have smaller, you know, immigrant communities, which, you know, means their political, you know, influence is less. But also, I just think, you know, a lot of people just think, yeah, you know, that's not really, you know, an important thing. You know, we've got, you know, economic, you know, issues and political issues, which are much larger, without recognizing all of it is connected today. Yeah, so true. I like, I'm glad that that is becoming more of a global conversation, but it's absolutely striking to me here in Spain in particular. And even in my younger years, when I lived in Sweden in my early 20s, hmm. interesting to see that a lot of their um, blind spots are because they come from such a homogeneous culture where everyone hmm. looks the same and has the exact same names. In fact, back when I was living in Sweden in 1999, I think in year 2000, they changed the law that you don't, you are allowed to give your baby a non-Swedish name at birth. Oh, wow. How recently right. uh, culture has been reinforced at that level. Um, so uh, yeah, I like to see that dialogue changing in a, a little bit more celebration of diversity perspectives it does influence your economics, your conversations, your diversity of thought right. celebrations. Yeah. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. So... Dex, I'm really curious. I've never asked you this before, even though we worked together for so many years. What is it like to write for some of the most quoted and uh, most watched and listened to executives? You've worked for not only Eric Schmidt, um, while he was CEO of Google, how we met, then also Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. What is it like to craft their words even better than they can? Um, well, you know, I think the thing is, you're, you're not necessarily inventing a voice, you're trying to unearth it. Um, you know, all of the folks, you know, I've, I've worked with are leaders, and they're people who have very strong worldviews. And, uh, you know, they've spent 
careers, you know, crafting things which have a huge impact on the world. And they've got plenty to talk about. They're used to talking. You know, they go to meetings and events all the time. But what you're trying to do is find out what are the things they really believe in, which they're not saying right now, or they're not expressing as well as they could be, and to, to bring those to, to light and to life. Um, you know, so this is, this is what I, I found fascinating. It was almost, you know, in my mind, like being an archaeologist. You know, you're trying to find something that's, you know, slightly obscure and you get the little brushes out and you start, you know, brushing off the, the dirt. And there, there is the gleaming, you know, treasure. And, you know, with Eric, um, you know, it was something that was about organizing and focusing on a set of thoughts because he has so many interests, you know, and he's, he's a real Renaissance guy. You know, Eric, you know, would happily talk about history, but it'll also, you know, whip into talking about the future of defense and really trying to organize those things so that people, um, you know, can hone in on, you know, one strand of that thinking. Because I think, you know, when you speak, people often only remember one thing about it, you know, classic rule. So trying to get Eric down to that one thing in each of his appearances, that was the goal. With other, you know, folks, it's the same game. You're still trying to unearth something, but it may be more about, we have one idea, we have one singular idea which this person is all about, but they want to build it out. They actually just want to expand it a lot more. They want to go really deep and they might want to talk to audiences that you know, might be much more wonkish, um, you know, they might be much more um, you know, specialist and you really just want to become a subject matter expert yourself. You aren't necessarily trying to translate these things into broad audiences. You actually are just trying to go as deep as you can possibly go. And, you know, that was somebody like Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I remember, you know, the days when I'd sit around reading, you know, textbooks on, you know, satellites, you know, and, uh, you know, optical, you know, communications technologies. You know, this was a, a real stretch for me, you know, from the normal sort of stuff I was reading. Um, you know, and you get people like Elon, you know, who doesn't want to be scripted in any way. And, you know, even before I joined, he was like tweeting to like people because they were like, you know, we hear Dex is joining. And he literally tweeted out, Dex will not be helping me in my speeches. It's like, oh, that's pretty clear before I like joined. Thanks for telling all of your Twitter followers. And for him, it was about bringing him, uh, you know, nuggets of information and bringing him ideas, which he would then translate himself into the way that he's comfortable with. And, you know, Elon has his own way of, of speaking. He almost never uses any sort of script. So, um, you know, I think there's lots of different, you know, things which are, you know, unique to each speaker, but really it's, you know, how do we unlock those ideas that they probably already have, or if they don't have, how can we build on what they've already done, you know, and make something new and, and better? You have such an artful way that you do that. Some of the most memorable speeches that Eric gave, I know were crafted by you and, and that initial structure. And I, I have, I think, 10 years worth of Eric's speeches quite literally memorized because I, I've heard those <laughs> so often. So um, I, I appreciated that art in you. And then when I watched you go on and do that for other executives who whose personalities are so distinctive, whose points of view are so important and so influential in the world, um, and quite literally can change stock prices by what they express, whether in speech or tweet. Um, but that, that actually leads me into a a different question I was going to ask you later on, but I think is tied into this is you are also um, a New York Times bestselling ghostwriter. You've helped people craft things in long form and written form before. And as you know, I'm publishing my first book now. I consider yeah. it a ghostwriter. Okay. It was a great experience for me because he helped me um, craft some ideas, but I ended up writing every single, typing every mm -hmm. single those words myself, just because that was important for me as a first time author to find my voice in a way that these other executives probably already had. Mm -hmm themselves. I'm curious, what is that process like? Is it different when you're doing it for a speech or a press announcement versus when you're doing something long form in that way? And how do you tap into that voice? Is the process similar? 
Yeah, very similar. I mean, I, I actually think it's, it's part of the same journey. Um, I really think the most important way to, you know, tap into, um, you know, somebody's voice is actually not to focus on the words. It's all about the ideas. Um, you know, and this is why also when it came to process for writing speeches, I was, I was a little different from other speechwriters. Lots of people would, you know, focus on, you know, draft production, you know, literally when do we start writing and then when do we stop writing? And for me, the writing part of all of this is actually weirdly the least important part. Like mechanically writing a speech, you can do that in half an hour or an hour. You know, if you want to give a 20 minute speech, give me an hour. But actually coming up with ideas that make that a useful and, you know, impactful speech, uh, that's going to take way more than an hour. And so you actually need to spend much more time developing the worldview and the ideas before you put pen to paper. And you know, that part comes at the end and the, you know, coming up with the beautiful words, that does take time. It, I probably wouldn't spend an hour, but it's something that, you know, you should be able to do, um, you know, in any circumstances. Um, it's the ideas that are unique in every opportunity. So um, definitely, um, you know, I think when you want to write for somebody else, you've got to get into their worldview. You've got to understand how they think about the world, how they think about the issues. You've got to pull out those thoughts and to make them original. You know, there was, um, you know, one, you know, executive at Google, you know, who, who coined a phrase, which I've been using for years, which said, if you want to be a thought leader, you've got to have a thought. <laughs> and there's a lot of folks who, you know, they want to be thought leaders, but they haven't necessarily invested the time in the thinking. And so if you want to write a book or you want to write an op-ed or you want to you know, write you know, a set of tweets on you know, Twitter, you know, all of that, think about it before you actually write. <laughs> that would probably get us out of a bunch of the uh, problems that we have with the digital age as well. I agree. <laughs> a moment of pause to make sure you had a thought. Right. Um, I, boy, I should have called you early in my book writing process because it becomes bewildering. <laughs> Once you start, I remember literally the first day sitting down in a cafe, I had done such a Google analytical approach to my plan for writing this book. I was like, okay, I need X number of pages. No, it was in words. My contract's for 68,000 words. I right. didn't, yeah, like, how long is that? I had to Google how many pages is 68,000. <laughs> then I reversed that and I, I was like, okay, I have this many days between now and my deadline and came out to about five pages a day. And I was like, perfect, that's easy. I can write five pages a day for like a strategy memo or something. I usually do that every day. Wrong, it does not. <laughs> but for me, the only way I found my way through the process was going back to that core outline of what were the key ideas, what out of this mm -hmm. is a value and then crafting something around that. So whenever I got too far in the weeds, I had to go straight back to that outline and be like, okay, <laughs> what was a value in this section? Cause I've forgotten. I've forgotten in the process. Yep. Let's see. I was going to ask you something related. Oh, I was listening to a podcast a month or so ago of a speechwriter. I've forgotten his name. He wrote for President Clinton um, and he drafted the speech he was supposed to give after the Mona Lewinsky trial mm -hmm. um, testimony. And uh, Clinton did not give it. So he actually has it framed and hanging in his guest room bathroom because it's the speech he wish he had given, but never was no one's ever heard it. And I just thought that was so fascinating for something that he obviously would have spent so much time crafting each word. Each word choice would have been really important in that kind of emotionally heightened situation for a president. Is there ever a speech or a message that you wrote that never like got out there that you kind of like maybe have hanging in your guest room bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hiding on my Google Drive, I think. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, too many of those actually. Um, you know, yeah, there's, there's one that I had actually, um, you know, back from uh, the aftermath of the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. where I wrote one about tech's commitment to democracy. And that was far too politically explosive for somebody to deliver it in the format I'd written it. Um, 
but you know it's one that you know if i were the person giving it you know and if i were completely unconstrained and the things i could say you know i would definitely give that speech um uh you know that would probably be the last one i give <laughs> um there was one that i gave uh that i wrote um for india which was all about um connectivity and really trying to provide the case for connectivity this was one of my big regrets uh you know from from my time you know in uh you know silicon valley in, in my first few years um i feel that there was a narrative you know in the early uh, 2010s around why tech matters for the world and uh, why we need to advance connectivity like the value of it for communities all over the world not just the most privileged people and i think a lot of um you know leaders took that for granted they just assumed that people were on board with that idea already and uh you know they wanted to move on to other things and i don't think that was true at all and i think this is you know one of the you know my basic communications lessons from that that whole experience which is the things you take for granted aren't necessarily uh you know things other people take for granted you know you've got to focus on the fundamentals and you've got to keep making the case for things you think that matter even if you think that the case has already been made for people in your network like silicon valley is not representative of the real world um you know it's a very small fraction of humanity and it's disproportionately the most well off um it is you know it is overwhelmingly american i was often the only european in the room and you know even you know between europe and the united states and europe being the other you know most prosperous you know part of the world there's huge divergence of views on you know fundamental issues and so i think a lot of the challenges that tech is facing today and and that a lot of leaders and companies are facing come down to not focusing on the fundamentals really advancing what is your purpose in the world why should i trust you you know people you know leap ahead to try to sell the product but if you don't trust the person you're not going to trust the product they're selling you know that's where you know the dodgy you know second hand car salesman comes in so you know we've really got to go back to fundamentals that's what i always think I couldn't agree more. That really resonates with my experience and so many of the pivots that have happened over the pandemic. The silver lining of that is I the companies and the executives who have done that really well have done so because they've recentered on that value, that mission of what they're putting into the world. Mm -hmm. That's given them a north star so they didn't get dizzy in the pivots they were doing, but really focused in even more so on the impact they're trying to have. And I also think it's um I had one of my ex executives, my CEO clients recently get a little frustrated with his younger employees and he started calling them snowflake millennials. He was just having wow. a moment, like a little moment. All right. And I was like these employees bring you such an advantage because they are so purpose driven they are so like yes they unfortunately have the burden of like having lived in a purely instagrammed world where everything looks perfect and they think everyone else is already successful now and so the, they haven't been exposed to the messy middle of the journey which i think is the part that was frustrating him but i said but really tap into the advantage that they're bringing of they want to do something that matters they don't want to do something that's just an interesting title or somebody who you know used to be important they really want to be part of the future of creating something very purposeful i think that's the advantage of of marrying these two concepts of of running really fast and being unafraid of of starting conversations that we haven't had before but inviting these new voices that really center us on that on that common purpose and that kind of leads us into this current phase of your career you are now head of the oversight board for facebook i wonder for those who aren't familiar with sorry just the communications team just like well yes but you're on on the communications team for the oversight board of facebook and i wonder for those who aren't 
familiar with that. Could you kind of talk to us about the foundational issues that, that board is trying to address and how you got tapped to be part of the communications team working on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, I came to the oversight board uh, in April uh, 2020, uh, and I was asked to lead the communications team. Um, you know, the oversight board is a project I've been you know, I've been following for a number of years. You know, Mark Zuckerberg first announced uh, the concept in 2018. Um, you know, where he, he talked about the idea of independent governance for Facebook on its most challenging content issues, and that's what the board is today. Uh, it's an independent body. There are currently 20 members of it, uh, you know, backed up by a full-time uh, team of staff. Um, and it makes binding decisions on the most uh, controversial content issues on Facebook and Instagram. In um, you know, the most recent, you know, high-profile decision that the board made was about uh, former President Trump's uh, Facebook and Instagram accounts and whether he should be indefinitely uh, suspended or not. Um, and, and the board um, you know, made a decision on that, which Facebook has to implement. Um, so uh, this is a body that, you know, it's a really exciting advance in you know, uh, the idea of independent governance and you know, self-regulatory governance of, of tech and you know, seeing whether that kind of structure can help steer the company uh, you know, towards making better decisions about content. Um, and, you know, it's something that, you know, I, I really, you know, very strongly believe in. I think, you know, the challenges of the digital age, um, you know, they're overwhelming. There's, you know, any number of problems, you know, with social media. And this is one very small part of that problem. But if we can make an impact here and allow the company to treat users on social media more fairly and to make more principled, you know, decisions that, you know, account for the huge diversity of users around the world, um, then I think actually that could end up, you know, potentially impacting millions of people's lives and uh, impacting the quality of expression for millions of people around the world. Um, and, you know, uh, this is a journey that, you know, just I, I've been following it closely along. So I got into conversations with the board, um, you know, back in uh, the spring in 2020 and uh, they escalated pretty quickly and uh, since then I've built out a team uh, in, in the UK and in the US um, and we've been we've been running pretty fast ever since. <laughs> it's been fascinating to watch because it's such an interesting it's almost an experiment because I can't think of anything that's comparable to this that has been done before mm -hmm. and it's such an important part of the conversation. One of the last things I did pre-lockdown was I went to a really interesting dinner um, I didn't know I was representing the bad guy, which is Google. They sat me next to the uh, author of a, an amazing book. Uh, it was Jamie Bartlett. He wrote The People. Right, sure. Great book, asked some really, really important questions, which I think is, is largely the task that this oversight board has been given for Facebook of how do we make sure that we have some accountability, but also how do we be sure that um, tech companies don't become the police of the internet as well. Right. We had to constantly ask ourselves those ethical questions while at Google as well. What are your perspectives on the strengths and weaknesses of the tasks that this board has been given and what responsibilities do you bear in, in this larger ripple effect of those decisions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I, I try to, you know, uh, simplify, you know, the, the purpose of the board, you know, when, when people say, you know, why does this thing exist? And I say, look, it comes down to a fundamental question, you know, again, focus on fundamentals. Do you believe that Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook's leadership should be making so many decisions about these incredibly consequential issues on their own. And people say, no, well, that's exactly where the board comes in. You know, we're here to take some of those decisions out of the hands of a very small group of people, uh, you know, mostly based in California, uh, and to apply a, a level of thinking that is deeper, that is more sophisticated, I think, um, and that really reflects the diversity of the world and can, you know, get in uh, you know, to issues uh, in a deep way 
that helps them to make decisions which then aren't just important for the single case they're on, but really help guide Facebook in thinking about how do they refine their systems and their policies so it impacts many, many more people um, you know, over the long term. Um, you know, in terms of you know, how, how do we impact others working in the ecosystem, you know, I, I also really stress this board is just one small part of a much broader framework of solutions that we need. And a lot of people, you know, they, they see things that Facebook or, you know, social media are in the news about, you know, which is, you know, any number of things on a daily basis. And they say, why aren't you dealing with that? Or why aren't you dealing with this? Uh, why aren't you angry about this? And the answer is, yeah, we, we might be really angry about that. But the board isn't here as an advocacy organization, and it's not here to do everything. Uh, you know, I don't think there's actually any uh, institution that can solve all of these problems we have with social media in, in today's world. What we need is lots of different solutions which are consistent, you know, and, you know, complementary. And that's where the board can come in. We're here to do this one small, but I think important job. And there are going to be jobs that other people will do, you know, governments, civil society, the tech industry itself, you know, regulators, and all of that, um, you know, together will add up to something really, really meaningful. Um, you know, us doing one thing does not mean that everybody else is off the hook for doing their thing. Um, you know, so I think, you know, uh, I think that argument's getting out there. Um, but a lot of people, I think, are just so desperate for a silver bullet, you know, to all of their, you know, problems. And in a way, that might be the most pernicious impact of social media. You know, people are often looking for a clickbait style solution to everything these days. You know, the one weird magic trick which will help you do X. And it's like, there aren't that many of those in the world. I, it's interesting to me how your career has so many full circle moments, like starting in the UN, being tasked with what's this Facebook thing, going to Facebook, and then being in this environment that's a little bit more like that UN environment where you're trying mm -hmm. to globally really understand the ripple effect and the big um, repercussions of decisions being made, but um, having to do so very collaboratively in an environment mm -hmm. where uh, there's not black and white answers. There's not a clear good and bad. You have to be really thoughtful. I was listening to a couple of podcast interviews with some of the members of the board talking about how difficult it is um, to really decide because a lot of the things, a lot of the rulings have been to reverse the initial decisions made by Facebook in right. post. And most of those decisions have come to reverse that. But it's not in support of the speech that, <laughs> that was, you know, potentially like offensive or insightful. But, um, but to really have to look at a particular set of rules and see if, if they've broken that. So I imagine it, it feels it's using such a rich uh, perspective of your unique background. I think it's just like almost like you were designed to be in this place. Does it feel like a, a unique combination of your skills have come together here? It does. I mean, it's it's been almost a, a coming home, as it were, you know, to to a sort of multilateral type, you know, institution, but one that is rooted in tech. Um, I think Kara Swisher. Uh, you know, who has been, uh, you know, fairly snarky about the board, uh, you know, she's referred to us as the UN of tech. And, uh, you know, I don't think she's cotton on to the fact yet that I was at the UN, otherwise she'll really enjoy this uh, analogy. But, um, you know, I think uh, the board is an incredibly diverse organization. You know, this is uh, an organization that doesn't just say that, you know, it, it is uh, so international. It has so many different, uh, you know, staff and, you know, people from different walks of life, you know, on the board, you know, we've got everything from, you know, former prime ministers to Nobel laureates, to academics, to activists, to members of the media, uh, a lot of lawyers. Um, and, you know, they all bring unique perspectives on these issues. And you just realize how complex they are. When people see an issue in the news and they think that's an easy decision, you know, you should just take that post down or we should put that post back up. Not so fast. 
what sort of precedent does that set for moderating content around the world? If Facebook starts doing this in this context, what does that mean for a political dissident or an activist in another country where uh, you know they may be facing you know very different pressures you know than what we may be facing in the democratic world? Um, you know, what are the kinds of uh, rules that need to be laid down? Um, you know that you know should apply to all users, and this is something we really believe. We believe that the same rules should apply to all users, um, and they should treat all users fairly. And that's something which you can only really unearth by looking at these things in detail, because then you expose the systemic problems that exist. You know, uh, you know, within the technologies or the policies, and that's how you ultimately you know shape an environment for, for millions of people. Otherwise, it really is just us you know being completely knee jerk and you know looking at individual things and just trying to race through as many of those as possible. And since there are millions of cases, you know, potentially in the world every day on Facebook, I don't think that's a sustainable approach. No, definitely not. I'm struck by, as you're describing that, how important the team is to mm -hmm. get the right results here. You've mentioned the diversity factor, the um, differences of uh, professional experiences, levels of seniority that are represented there. And I'm curious, um, I'm just reflecting on the course of your career where you've described kind of how it felt to be that junior most member of a team when you started the UN. And then now when you're running very impactful, globally impactful teams. What for you is the common denominator when you think about the individual contributor? Maybe uh, I'm asking two questions at once. Somebody who's young and really wants to be involved in these important conversations, how do you insert your voice, even as an, maybe just a Facebook user and be thoughtful about contributing to this conversation and creating the, the world and the debates that we wanna see? And then second is when you're crafting a team as a senior leader, how are you designing these teams to bring out those voices, mm -hmm. bring out the diverse perspectives so you can maximize the, the, so you're more than the sum of your parts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I think the common theme is um, people who care deeply about these things. Um, you know, it, it sounds like a trite point, but you know, I, I always am fascinated by the connection that people have to the mission of the organization they're, they're working on and whether they truly believe in it and whether they truly understand it. And, you know, a lot of folks, you know, and I don't, I don't fault anyone for this. Lots of people, you know, get a job because they need to have a job. Like you need to earn an income. Um, but there's also folks who really want to go deep. They want to really, you know, uh, you know, build out an organization or, you know, build out a career, you know, within a field. And uh, they have thought deeply about the implications of the things they're working on. They've had the opportunity to do that. And those are the folks that you really want to find ways to assemble resources and people and energy around them so they can, you know, run with the ball. And, you know, when, when you're a junior, uh, you may have a lot of ideas and you may have a lot of passion, you won't necessarily have a lot of experience, so you won't know how to execute those ideas. So I think in, in that situation, you're probably looking to, to, you know, guide that person and to support them with how do you turn those ideas into a reality. When you're more seasoned, you probably have a better idea of how to execute those things. You're still going to need a lot of help from other people to develop ideas. Like at no age, uh, you know, do, do people suddenly become geniuses at the things they do, you know, and I think you, you know this, you know, better than I do. And with all the clients you're working with, you know, the best leaders are the ones who recognize I only know a small fraction of things about a small fraction of things. And I actually want to bring in the best people around me to help, you know, develop my thinking on the 90% of things 
I'm not really sure I have a clue about, or, you know, I probably have some, you know, vague intimations about, but they might not be the best actual, you know, ideas to turn into practice. And so, you know, I, I do think, um, you know, you're, you're always going to be looking for people who believe in the work they're doing, because they're going to be the people who will have thought deeply and they will probably come with more creative and interesting ideas, but you want to, um, you know, do different things depending on where they are in their career to help them go and execute. I love that. I, there's so many pearls of wisdom in there that I was just like shaking my head like a bobblehead because I was just like, <laughs> that has been my experience as well. And I do remember the crushing moment when I realized that there wasn't this beautiful moment in my future where I was going to know all the answers and feel purely confident that I could handle any, any challenge thrown my way. But then there comes this moment where you realize that then it's your job to craft the teams to support that and to hire strengths and other people that make up for my weaknesses. And you're right, all of my consulting clients have this moment of um, terror and then relief of realizing their job as a CEO is to hire for those expertise, to have those individual perspectives and expertise to be at the table. And that any CEO who's done their job properly, he or she is going to be in inferior to the other people around the table in a particular area of expertise. And that's what success feels like. <laughs> and challenge but that's why you have to be really thoughtful and i think you're right for young people really finding an opportunity maybe your first job doesn't look like your dream job i talk about this in the book how my early opportunities didn't seem directly connected to my larger career goals but in retrospect i can see how those smaller roles taught me the essential skills that allowed me step by step to qualify myself to to eventually get to something really meaningful and that in our last few minutes leads me to the last few questions as um we're coming out of the pandemic. We've got a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel with some new normalcies coming back in. A lot of people are now talking about legacy. What mm -hmm. do we really want to center their lives and their careers around purpose and reflecting what's of core value? Have you been thinking about legacy and kind of what's next for you and where you hope this is leading you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm happy as a clown on the board right now. And I think we've, we've got a lot of work to do in the next few years. You know, uh, the things I've always been attracted to are, you know, things that, you know, will create a lot of value for the world. And, you know, in whatever small way I, I can, you know, make that contribution, uh, you know, so I'm sure, you know, throughout my career, whatever comes next, I'll be looking for something that can have that kind of impact. Um, you know, I do think going back to where we started the conversation, um, you know, there are a lot of places you can go and make an impact. Uh, you know, you don't just have to be working in the public sector or in philanthropy. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, that also means, uh, you know, if you, you know, are adventurous and, you know, you're, you're creative and you, you want to see, uh, you know, what's going on on the other side of the parapet, you might go and find another place, you know, to go and make that impact. Um, I don't think you need to be hamstrung by just thinking about, you know, a single, you know, uh, field or role or even industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of places you can go and have an impact if you've got those skills. And, you know, I'm sure, and you work with a lot of clients from a lot of different industries now, not just tech. And that's, that's part of the fun of it, right? You know, seeing how you can not just, you know, go and do more stuff for more tech leaders, because you've, you've done a lot of that, but it's how can I take interesting thinking from tech leaders to non-tech industries where those, you know, ideas may actually be even more impactful. They may be transformative for industries that haven't, you know, previously embraced, you know, um, you know, those kind of innovations. So, you know, if that's the kind of, you know, thinking I'm, I'm currently in, um, I think a lot of people are, are trying to form, uh, you know, concrete plans out of all these ideas, which I'm sure, you know, lots of us have been having. So I think in the next few years will be really, really interesting to see where, where people go. Well, you ha have anticipated my final question in, in that response, which I so appreciate. I really wanted to end this on 
on the note of what gives you hope, what are, what are you excited about in the future and what are we hoping to craft as we come out of the other side of this and hopefully create a new normal that's, that's really purposeful. Is there something that particularly excites you? Well, um, you know, I think this is, this is something I've, I've always strongly believed, which is, you know, social media and technology today more broadly have connected, you know, billions of people into a global community for the first time in our history. And in a way, because we've all got so used to that, you know, in the West, we've all started taking it for granted. And, you know, certainly I think a lot of, you know, elites, a lot of policymakers in particular, they sort of, you know, just dismiss it. You know, it's that sort of hand wavy, yeah, sure, fine. But now let's talk about all the problems that creates. Well, hang on, before we talk about the problems, let's actually talk about, you know, the huge value of that. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. And that gives me hope. You know, the fact that we actually have, you know, the ability to collaborate and to build networks and to drive change now through, uh, you know, networks of millions or billions of people, that is something incredibly powerful. And, you know, the last year, more than anything in our lives has exemplified why we need global solutions to global challenges. We just got absolutely pounded by a global challenge where the world, frankly, didn't collaborate that well together. And the, the brightest rays of hope in all of that were the scientists and by, you know, folks, you know, who are experts and civil society leaders and journalists and all these other people who did choose to think globally and to act globally and to share information and ideas and to work across borders. And, you know, lots of, you know, folks from business and, you know, just ordinary walks of life have been working across borders, you know, every day through, through this pandemic. And I think that has given us a little bit of a, a better muscle to go and, you know, prepare for the next global challenge. And I'm sure we'll have many more challenges in our lives, you know, of this nature, and we've got to prepare for them. I can't imagine a better place to end our conversation. That is so inspiring and so encouraging that we need each voice. I, For me, at first, it was alarming to realize that there weren't the adults in the room that I thought there were who had all the answers and were running <laughs> the world seamlessly. But at, on the, the other side of that same coin is that there's more of a need now than ever for each of us to feel a responsibility in our communities, to hold our leaders accountable, to be mm -hmm. part conversation and to be part of the change that that we want to see in the world. So I think that's a really empowering message. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, your career journey, your inspirations for the future and giving us a ray of hope as we come out of the other side of all of this. So thank you again Great. for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Anne. Delighted to join. <laughs>